Hey guys, Andre Harrison back at it once again with episode 20, the 20th episode special, you could say. Well, maybe not so special, depends how, how this podcast goes in the end, because <laughs> for those guys that don't know, this, this is technically our 21st episode. There was an episode I had planned in the works, but it got cancelled. There was some content in there I didn't feel was really appropriate for broadcast. But welcome, anywho, to episode 20 of Motorsport 101, or 20.5 if you're cracking, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> but uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking all about, well, it's actually a Formula 1 special more than anything else on this one. We might have time for some Formula E, if I feel like it, depends on how much time we go through. But yeah, this is basically going to be talking about Ford 1 because it was quite a newsworthy but not newsworthy race in Austria, so to speak. Uh, Nico Rosberg continued his fine form by winning his third round in the last four races as he, as he took the Austrian Grand Prix ahead of Lewis Hamilton and Felipe Massa um, in third and narrowly pipping Sebastian Vettel to the post after he suffered a horror pit stop. Um, so we'll be talking all about the Austrian Grand Prix and how it was quite a crazy weekend, but also not a crazy weekend in that regard. Because there actually wasn't that much to take away from the event besides maybe a couple of you know minor talking points you'd get in a Sky Sports F1 review column, so to speak. Um, we'll be talking about engine penalties, whether they've gone too far far and f1's in crisis apparently because apparently that's news to some people and you know there's been a lot of talk regarding f1 and and how much trouble and i use that in inverted commas it's apparently in at the moment with a lot of talk about engine development being thrown out of the window why we can't race close anymore the sport being in crisis there's no entertainment in formula one anymore and austria was the worst grand prix they'd ever seen in their lives did i mention there may have been some hyperbole in in that last 30 seconds maybe no but yeah we'll be talking all about that too with me and my usual partner in crime mr ryan king hello sir hey everyone glad to be here well glad in the sense i'm on the show topics (laughs) could be better (laughs) yeah i mean don't get me wrong i don't really want to talk about how stupid this whole thing is but unfortunately sometimes these things are necessary once again me and king are going to be your f1 community voices of reason me the Malcolm Tucker of the F1 community, and <laughs> my sidekick, the Pissy Biscuit, <laughs> so to speak. Um, <laughs> so we'll be talking about the Austrian GP, um, engine penalties, is F1 in a little bit of a crisis point at the moment? Brackets, not really. And maybe Formula E's season finale in London this weekend as a bonus, depending on how we are for time. So hope you guys sit down, buckle up and enjoy an F1 special, episode 20 of Motorsport 101. Okay, King, let's talk about Austria, and, and this is an open topic, really, to talk about your beloved Nico Rosberg, as he took another victory. It's, you know, it, like, it, it's, it's kind of funny how, for all the talk about there's been about Lewis Hamilton this season, on and off the track, Nico Rosberg's very quietly won three of the last four rounds. <laughs> yes, he's won three of the last four rounds. It's not really been overhyped. Uh, no one really counted, I mean... Spain was so weird. I mean, <laughs> mm. it was a complete, it was a complete nothing race, really, wasn't it? Because Hamilton was stuck behind Vettel for half the race, and by the time he was free, the race was already over. And it, I mean, it seemed almost like no one wanted Nico Rosberg to win after he won. It seemed like okay, on the next race, good job, Nico. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it was weird. I know Spain was kind of a nothing Grand Prix, really, in that regard, and there wasn't, you know, very many things to take away from it, besides the fact that, you know, there was a minor talking point about Ferrari and their strategy call to put Vettel on a three instead of a two-stopper and whatnot, and they committed to the two, and how it didn't really work. But, yeah, I mean, Rosberg kind of ran away with it from the start, really, and the convenience of uh, the great Ferrari buffer in front of him and the lack of opportunity to pass, despite... Catalonia's straight being so long yeah it wasn't really newsworthy it was like oh well Rosberg's won so yeah when's Monaco <laughs> and you know there wasn't even there wasn't even a lot of talk about about why Hamilton didn't even win that race it was just genuinely regarded oh well he was stuck behind Vettel that's why he didn't win next so to speak because you know I mean we're in the British media circle, jerk. We all know they're up Hamilton's rears all the time. And even then, they didn't talk about Hamilton coming second all that much, really, did they? No. I mean, it seems like... It seems like every race is like a Game 7 or a, or a World Series... Yeah, World Series Game 7, where it's either going to be... Where everyone's on one side. It's either going to be champagne at the end, or just, you know, there's always next year. Yes, in other words, our LeBron James lost his second finals in about six weeks. Poor fella, uh, <laughs> so to speak, as the more conservative and more well-rounded Golden State Rosbergs came through to take their third consecutive win. And all of a sudden, the title gap is down to 10 points again. We might actually have an actual title fight in our hands, unlike last year where it was just mechanical convenience brought the two together more often than not, which was kind of weird, but that's just how it worked last year. I mean, last year there wasn't really a title fight. It was was just more, well, the convenience of one person retiring at a certain Grand Prix kind of gave us the illusion it was close. Um, don't yeah. get me wrong, it shouldn't it shouldn't have been a 67-point gap in the end either by the time this, the title was all said and done, but of course, Rosberg lost out on a guaranteed 36 by those engine failures at the end. So, yeah, it, like this time it's actually closer than people think. And I know Sky wrote in their conclusions column after the race that like, they, 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 like they were shocked <laughs> that the gap's only 10 points and you know it, it, it is a little bit of a shock given that Hamilton has qualified on pole was it seven out of the eight rounds this season and yeah I mean the fact he's only converted that into four wins is a bit of a surprise in that regard even though it shouldn't be given that Rosberg's the pole trophy winner and that he did win five races last year believe it or not yeah I mean uh, I think it- I talk about this all the time about, you know, when it comes to previous seasons, do you just simply simplify the narrative down to its basic terms? So the fact that, yes, Rosberg finished in second, but he didn't win, so basically he did nothing. Yeah, it's the Felipe Massa 2008 argument, where, where you know, it really should have been Massa's title that year, but he, can, he finished second on paper, so we just completely ignore that. That kind of narrative, it's, it's fruitless, really. And I know a lot of people last year felt like there was a title fight going down to the final round so they automatically felt excited even though with the fact that Hamilton could finish second and win probably overblew that one out of proportion really didn't it yeah yeah I mean I don't want to go off on a tangent here but there there is value to come in second because let's be honest Fernando Alonso probably won't be considered an all-time great if we only look at yeah he won a championship Mm. twice twice in an era where the rules were blatantly stacked to cripple Ferrari. Um, yes, I mean, I, I think it's more like, you need to acknowledge, coming second place in the championship is worth a lot. Exactly. I mean, runner-ups do get a little bit of talk too. I know 
I know we have this mentality in, in racing that, you know, second doesn't matter and, 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 you know, you can only, you're only here to win, you know, you're not here to do okay and narrative, chess beating, yada, yada, yada. But at the same time, there is value in coming in second because hell, would anybody else remember Felipe Massa's career if it wasn't for that 2008 season? No. Exactly. So there is some value to that. But I mean, it wasn't really that thrilling a race at the front, unfortunately. I mean, Rosberg, I mean, it was a hell of a move from Rosberg to into turn one, a place where you don't normally pass a guy. I mean, that was, I think that was the only pass into turn one, that Grand Prix, and it was Hamilton getting a bad start, um, so to speak, and uh, Rosberg taking advantage by passing him into turn one, and... Uh, that was pretty much the long and the short of it, really. I mean, Rosberg and Hamilton. This is the narrative people will say, like, oh, well, Hamilton's way faster than Rosberg. Yeah, not really. Most of the time, there's only ever maybe a tenth or two between them, like, on any given track most of the time. Like, like the only one that really surprised me this season was Monaco in terms of how Rosberg was off the pace. But on the whole, Rosberg was the faster man this Grand Prix. And they were both in clear air for the entirety of the time. It was just Hamilton just wasn't as fast on the day to me, as Rosberg. Is that a fair statement to make, King? Yeah, that's a, that's a very fair statement. Like, I don't want to, you know, go the Sky F1 route and say that, oh, Rosberg buried Hamilton psychologically with that pass, but... It, what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it almost seemed like that. But it did, didn't I, it? it? It almost seemed like that, but it, it just seemed like Hamilton just didn't have it in the tank that, on Sunday. It's it's funny, like whenever like we've mentioned this before, but whenever Rosberg wins a race, there's very little coverage on said race itself. Like whenever, and we all know, like I said before, Sky have this Hamilton nucleus about them. The the source where a lot of the cynicism came from regarding Rosberg came from Will Buxton, um, who went on a massive tirade um, after the race, you know, blaming the clutch. Um, you know, for Hamilton not winning, and now he's had that clutch free of the last four rounds, and he's only had a bad start. To which my response was, nobody spoke about this when he lost second to Sebastian Vettel in Spain, but nobody talks about that. Yeah. <laughs> this is very convenient. Now it comes up because Rosberg actually passed Hamilton on track for the first time in donkey's years. So it's 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 just cynicism, really, isn't it, King? Yeah, like. If you follow me on Twitter, I mean, if people listening to me, listen right now, follow me on Twitter, they know I didn't see the race live. No. I ended up watching <laughs> it on tape delay for like the first time in almost a year since I watched NBC. Mm. And Will Buxton's the pit reporter over there. And he questioned Mercedes live on air about why they, why they pitted Hamilton when they did. Yeah, it's like... When they don't realize that it's always been a Mercedes policy that leading car gets first choice on pit stops... Yeah, I I can't believe like a pit lane reporter, especially one as knowledgeable and as in, and you know seemingly intelligent as Will Buxton, would like did not know this. Like I know this, and I've been and I and I'm, I'm not exactly because I'm not exactly what you call a Mercedes follower, so to speak. But I, <laughs> I I I knew that's always been a thing where the leading Mercs gets first call on strategy. That's always been their policy. Yeah, that's that's the leading thing and that i mean it almost that policy kind of gives us the racing that we get where everyone's surprised like oh why can't nico rosberg ever catch lewis hamilton it's like it was the same thing happened today but in reverse it seems like whoever gets the benefit of the pit strategy will most likely win the race yeah when you put it like that it's actually quite a valid point in that regard yeah i mean leading car 
gets to superior strategy by pitting one lap earlier because you know going longer on these degrading tires will cost you time and there's no such thing as an undercut when it went when you're mercedes because you know the, the guy that gets the leading call will always pit first yeah. so <laughs> you know and the, the guy in second is given the nature of pirelli's tires he's got no chance of coming out in front unless the guy in front completely botches his outlap which just doesn't happen so yeah i mean whoever gets whoever's leading going into the round of stops most likely will will take the win and you know especially given that their pace has been practically identical all season long maybe it's like maybe a tenth or hit maybe a tenth or two here or there either way but there's not a clear landmark faster driver out of the two it's just you know the pit strategy does play the hand there because you know mercs as a team are looking out for their leading car which is what any smart team would do you're not going to look after your number two car and give that priority so just common sense dictates you know you would look after your leading car first hence the monaco overblown drama there where everyone was having a go at mercedes for their bad strategy call which cost them Oh yeah, three points. <laughs> they really, really got a one-three instead of a one-two, and then everyone was giving Toto Wolff a meltdown like he just committed treason, uh, so to speak. But yeah, I mean, the, the Mercs were again a country mile ahead of third-place finisher Felipe Mass. I think it was about twenty-five seconds by the time it was all said and done, um, which again is nearly half a lap when you put it into context around Austria, um, which is a lot of time. Maybe not half of a third of a lap, so to speak, because it's a it was about a seventy-second lap during races but you know Massa taking third ahead of Sebastian Vettel Sebastian Vettel was uh, caught out in the pits you know it's like the Ferrari rear gunman you had one job (laughs) you had one job and the one stop Vettel had to make was a rear tire I think it was a wheel nut issue of some kind and it cost him about 10 seconds in the pit lane he came out behind Felipe he really reeled him in over the course of the second half of the race but Williams being Williams, the Great Wall of Williams, you can't pass them <laughs> using <laughs> using like that's been a running narrative this season. It happened in Bahrain, it happened in Spain with Raikkonen behind Valtteri Bottas, and it's happened again now. You cannot pass a Williams these days. If you're if you're coming up to Williams, you're stuck behind it because their straight line speed is that good. <laughs> yeah, their straight line speed is that good, and in modern Formula One, it's impossible to pass in corners. Exactly, you 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 just you just can't do it, and. Like that's that's a problem, and you know it, it's we'll be talking about this more in depth in the second half of the podcast where we're talking about racing issues in general. But the nature of these cars and the, and the turbulent air effect means your best running behind the car is about one point five seconds. <laughs> like yeah. anything anything within that range, the turbulent air is going to affect your cornering speed and hence why passing can be notoriously difficult around some places Austria being one of them even though to be fair given the way the midfield played out and when there was a lot of action actually a surprisingly large amount of overtaking and passing going on there yeah I mean sure it can be done but I actually think they got the DRS zones right in that one by not putting one into turn two which you know the straight was long enough that you could have a, a viable slipstream be able to pass somebody and turn three straight where the straight is just long enough for DRS to have an effect, but not long enough to make a move automatic. I actually think Austria got it right in that regard. Yeah, I mean, considering that it was the same setup last year, just no one even cared to notice. Mm, it was last year, they were, like, they were too busy buying David Croft's words that Hamilton could pass Bottas from half a second away. <laughs> <laughs> 
like 10 car lengths back. It's like, oh, can he get him into turn two? No. No. <laughs> Don't be silly, David Croft. But essentially, yeah, I mean, just passing into into those corners wasn't, wasn't you know, more or less impossible, so to speak. And yeah, they actually got it right, which is, uh, you know, for me, a, a rare thing and a thing where a lot of people just didn't notice last year because I think the race was quite mediocre and Williams kind of shot themselves in the foot when they had the chance for the win. Um, but to me, I think they got it right on this one, King. Yeah, they seemingly play. They they had they had the right hand. They had, they had the right they had the right cards. They just everything went right this weekend, which <laughs> which seemingly doesn't seem to be always the case. Yeah, one, it doesn't seem to be always the case, and two, that still didn't please some people. Uh, again, more on that later, but. Yeah, apparently a race of a decent amount of passing and, you know, a good amount of midfield action isn't good enough to make a race at least decent, um, so Like, it wasn't speak. for the lead, Dre. It wasn't for the lead. <sighs> you, like, rule of thumb amongst casual F1 fans, if there's not a battle for the win, the race automatically sucks. Note, your greatest race of all time did not have a race-leading pass until the final lap. Until Just thought you'd like lap. to know. And that's because one specific driver bottled it terribly. Don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, essentially, you know, it's, it's amazing how that one, how that one turns out. Um, you know, the, the greatest race of our times was a race where the midfield carried the entire frigging race, uh, so to speak. But hey, what do I know? Uh, so running down the result real quick, we'll run out a, little, a couple extra notes from it from here. Nico Rosberg taking the win over Lewis Hamilton by 8.8 seconds. It should have been 3.8, but it was actually 8.8 because of Hamilton taking a five-second um, time penalty um, for running over the pit exit. Um, right, Cool King? Five seconds about right? I think, I think that's a, I think that's Yeah. A, I think, I think that's very reasonable. I mean, I think it used to be a drive-through back in the day. That, that was <laughs> yeah. way too harsh most of the time. So I think they've actually got that one right. So yeah, five-second, minor penalty, minor infringement, no problem with that. Hamilton, that pretty much sealed the win for Rosberg in that regard after the pit, after the one and only pit stop the race had. Um, so yeah, 8.8 .8 seconds of the win. Uh, Felipe Massa was another nine seconds back in third. It was actually less than I thought, actually. I mean, the Mercs must have really dialed it down towards the end. Um <laughs> But yeah, Felipe Massa, uh, 17 seconds behind there in third, just ahead of Sebastian Vettel, who we mentioned, could not pass the Williams <laughs> for about four or five laps towards the end there. Felipe Massa did a good job of holding off uh, the Ferrari threat behind him, but Williams do seem to be a little bit closer. Um, I'm not thoroughly convinced their upgrades work just yet. I mean, they would not have really had much of a chance if it weren't for that 10-second botch that, that the Vettel had in the pits. But yeah, and their car is pretty much an Austria special. <laughs> It isn't I mean this this car was built for this place and I mean look on the other end Valtteri Bottas despite having brake issues was 53 seconds off the win 35 seconds behind his teammate uh, so yeah somewhere in the middle ground I reckon is probably a more realistic or more fair number given the context of where they're at at the moment but yeah Bottas in fifth there best he could do with damaged brakes 53 seconds off the win Hulkenberg the last guy on the racing lap a superb performance from from Hulkenberg in the Force India. Last guy in the racing lap, he qualified in, I think it was in fifth place, and by splitting the Williams there. So uh, a pretty good week if you're Nico Hulkenberg, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, a lot of talk about him regarding that possible Ferrari seat up in the air. He was asked about this on Sky Deutschland by Tanya Bauer, and he diddy-dallied when he said no in denial as regards to has the top teams come calling about your availability for next season. Uh, 
Nico, if you want to make it sound like you're telling the truth, don't delay yourself for about an hour before denying it. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a good look. No one's going to buy that. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, 7th place, Pastor Maldonado. And my word, uh, he had he got into quite the scrap with Max Verstappen at the end, and he had one of the most outrageous bits of car control I have ever seen on that home straightway. I don't know what Max was doing in terms of trying to defend the line into turn one, but uh, did you see that, King? The, uh, yeah. The, the bolt out from Maldonado, it was, it was about 180 miles an hour coming up the hill with his DRS miles. was yes. open. I, it was, oh my god. I don't know how in God's name Pastor was able to not have a spectacular accident, but uh, well done, Pastor. Another very solid result there in seventh place. Back-to-back seventh places for Pastor, as a matter of fact. So Pastor, I think, finally getting the rub of the green after a really unlucky start to the season. Ahead of like, the aforementioned Max Verstappen in eighth, the highest-powered Renault finisher in there, and one of only two or three in the top ten, I should say, along with Sebastian. As uh, Sergio Perez um, rounded off the uh, ninth place there for Force India, and Daniel Ricciardo, who started, I think, in 18th on the grid after a uh, engine penalty, the first um, engine penalty that Red Bull's got to take this season after their Renault's you know, terrible reliability they've had this year. Um, so Daniel Ricciardo managing to recover a point in the end in 10th, ahead of Felipe Nasa, who just tr- he just got on with business, really, in 11th place. Kvyat in 12th, ahead of Marcus Ericsson. And then Manners, highest finish of the year. Um, Roberto Mehi in 14th place, a mere three laps down, ahead <laughs> of um, Carlos Sainz Jr., had a gearbox failure. Will Stevens had an oil leak in the car, so he couldn't make it past the opening lap. And Jensen Button with an electrical problem. Uh, as McLaren's general misery continues. And the one of the most noteworthy parts of the Grand Prix, a lap one incident between Danil Kvyat, who it turns out did hit the back of Kimi Raikkonen's car, which caused him to lose control of his car um, on the straight towards turn three, and then collected Fernando Alonso in the process. Uh, Raikkonen, a very lucky man that Alonso's car didn't end up on top of Kimi's head. And what would have been a very, very terrible accident instead just me and a minor tap and a um, rear ending that reminded me of uh, Michael Schumacher in Abu Dhabi 2010, <laughs> so to speak. I think it was the Utsi that drove over the back of him that day. Um, but yeah, King, a pretty spectacular accident there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it took a while to really sort everything out and actually see what happened because on the race feed, you could only see Kimmy's T-cam. And obviously, you can't see anything from the decam when the entire accident happens behind the car. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we all we saw was Raikkonen just lose control on the front straight. And next thing you know, they, they've cut away to uh, a scene of a Ferrari with a McLaren on top of him. And next thing you know, it's Alonso. And it's like, oh, crud, what's going on here? And it was a big one for Alonso. He hit the wall at 36G. Um, it was a big impact for Fernando coming out of turn three there and being collected. Um, Stewards had a look at it, deemed no further action was required. I think the right call there it was just, a, just really just a chain reaction more than anything else because Kvyat had to change his front wing in the pits um, during that safety car period we had at the start of the Grand Prix. Um, but yeah, just a weird unfortunate series of events that just caused a uh, big, big accident at the end there. So that's pretty much all the major talking points from Austria covered. But uh, King, let's let's talk about engine penalties here because both McLarens had the biggest engine penalty we've ever seen in Formula 1 as both McLarens hit with a 25-place grid penalty. And because of the rule of untaken grid penalty spots... 
Um, the penalty carries over into the race itself, and I believe it was uh, Button that had to do a 10-second stop-go penalty, while Fernando Alonso had, had to take a drive-through during the first three laps of the race. And uh, yeah, what do you make of this rule now it's been changed? Because it's been opened up a little bit more in the public eye. And now we've seen the confusion of trying to rearrange these grids after the penalties get handed out. And, you know, excessive penalties and then penalties carrying over into the race. I mean, what do you reckon? <laughs> uh, I, I don't see the penalties as being excessive in terms of that the teams aren't deserving. It These rules are not like the the rules for race incidents where it's up to the the stewards' discretion. These rules are in the regulations, like rules you would see like in the NFL for, you know, an offsides call in the NFL, where, yes, they have to give you this penalty if you infringe upon the rule. Yeah, which I find it all the more funny that basically Sky was suggesting they just scrap the whole thing. <laughs> like, yeah, it's just, we're just going to tip X out that part of the regulations about engine penalties. Because, you know, Honda is so bad, it's like, what's the point of punishing them during the race? And it's just like, guys, rules are rules, okay? We can't just bend them because one team sufficiently sucks enough. Like, you're opening up a dangerous precedent by uh, encouraging that kind of talk about, you know, opening up the regs, so to speak. But... Yeah, for me, it's it's it looks harsh on paper. But if 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 the teams have agreed and they've hardwired them into the rules, you can't just not enforce it. Yeah, you you can't not enforce it because then, in theory, Honda could use as many engines as they would like, which basically makes a sham of the entire regulations. Exactly. You can't just let Honda and give them a free pass to do whatever the hell they want because that's dangerous too. Because what if Honda suddenly got good? We'd have no way of stopping them unless we changed the rules again, and this sport would look really freaking stupid yeah. um, either way. So you, you can't just change the rules because one team is really bad, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, I, it, it's, it annoys me there's a bit of a double whammy effect because it carries over into the race because you can't take a certain amount of grid spots, and it, it does make things a little bit confusing, but there really isn't a better way of doing this, in my opinion. Yeah, unless you start deciding to give out fines, which a lot of people would also not like because it would affect teams much more further down the field if they were to be fined than the big teams who could easily afford the fines. Yeah, does anybody really want to see Mana take a £100,000 fine or something like that for an engine penalty or for untaken grid spots or whatever the hell it is? Yeah, I mean, there's already enough public sympathy for Mana given where they are in Formula 1. It would only get even worse if you had to force them to pay ex- extra money on top of it. Was, you know, money they, they probably don't even have at the moment <laughs> more than anything else given how much they're spending on next year's car and their development and etc, etc. But, yeah, I mean, that's all the major talking points coming out of Austria, really. I mean, I mean there wasn't... Too, this is why I say it was kind of a paradox that there's been a lot to talk about regarding Austria, but not really a lot to talk about. I guess it goes to, just goes to show you the overblown nature of Formula 1 at its core, which we'll be talking about much more in-depth now as to, is F1 in crisis? Is there a situation now where the fans have become so entitled that even a decent race like Austria can take criticism for not basically being Bahrain 2014, so to speak. And is F1 in crisis? Is there a problem? Or are we all overblowing this? We'll take a quick musical break, and then we'll come back with more talk about that. I'm 
Because it's, let's be real, the next hour probably isn't going to be very pretty for either of us, quite frankly, because we know what's up when it comes to F1, and yeah. I know a lot of people who don't, <laughs> and, and that, that sounds really arrogant, but it's just the reality of it, really, because a lot of people are just going absolutely nuts over this, and to fill it in, I know you missed this race, King, live, so you didn't, he didn't deal with the live reaction to it, or maybe a little bit afterwards, because you yeah, know a little bit. Yeah, because you know what, Ask Crofty's like, Ask Crofty's immediately after a Grand Prix, and you, you get your usual wave of really dumb freaking questions, which David inevitably answers. To put it into perspective, when I feel bad for the stupidity that David Croft has to get, retweet, and answer, <laughs> there is a problem. Because I, I don't exactly hail David Croft the oracle of, of F1 information and knowledge when he's opening himself up to the fans, because there was some real dumb shit going through these questions like, oh, like, there should be more fan interaction in F1. You're talking to the sport's most famous commentator at the moment. On Twitter, immediately after a race ends. What on more air. do you on want? <laughs> Live on TV. It's like several hundred million people are watching this. Or like several tens of millions. Because Sky is, is a feed that goes not just through the United Kingdom. But and you know, you're guaranteed at least five million views. Because that's how many people are watching on Sky these days per race. So... I mean, what more do you really want when you're getting your questions read out live on the air in front of a very famous commentator because of the Sky F1 gig he's got alongside Martin Brundle, alongside one of the biggest broadcasters on the planet in Sky? So, yeah, I mean, this is this is what was going through a lot of people's minds. And there was a recurring theme on Ask Crofty this time around. Normally, the questions are all over the place during an Ask Crofty session. This one was more to do about entertainment. Entertainment, fan enjoyment, you know, a lot of people calling Crofty out for not enjoying that race. And a lot of people calling Crofty out for basically enjoying himself while a lot of other people weren't. And saying that, you know, we've got a divine right to entertainment, so to speak, in Formula 1 now. And me watching that race live, there was a lot of my peers in the F1 community that was basically throwing this race completely under the bus saying it was a 3 out of 10 race and I'm like what race were you watching <laughs> like seriously what was what is a, even a 6 out of 10 race in your opinion because I, I don't know what your standards are but I thought that was just utterly ludicrous quite frankly because there was the, the reaction was very raw and very bitter and spiteful towards this grand prix even though in my opinion I thought it was quite decent king yeah i mean Watching it not live without any, you know, people chiming in on Twitter saying how terrible it is or anything. It was it was fairly decent race watching it by myself. Yet, 
usually like me having a pretty like bad short-term memory i usually watch the races twice and i haven't gotten to this one the second time around yet mm. so i don't know what to make of it as a whole but first impression it was it wasn't terrible it was pretty okay it was pretty decent. No, that was the words I used to describe it. It was pretty decent. In my race review, I gave it a 6 out of 10 score. I thought that was about as good a race as you could get without something dramatic happening that would alter the alter the path of the entire race. Because that's what normally has to happen for it to be a race in Formula 1 that's maybe a 7 out of 10 or better. Something crazy normally has to happen. And uh, ironically, only one race... This year, I've given a 7 out of 10 or higher in Formula 1. It was Malaysia, and surprise, surprise, something crazy happened, and that was the shock of Ferrari being competitive. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that wasn't that, you know, crazy. It was that Ferrari was just competitive. It was just a surprise more than anything else. I mean, one of the the things that people, like, want from Formula 1 to implement in some ways, make the cars more difficult to drive... And from what I, like, my impression, that's just code of you just saying, oh, you want someone to lose control of their car. Exactly. So someone can overtake them. You just want, as as you would say, general fuckery. General fuckery. Yeah, that's that's what I like to call it. Basically, we want drivers to be on the edge. And again, I use that in inverted commas. I'm trying to make it sound like it during a podcast. Like, I'm trying to sound sarcastic here. Like, they want drivers to be on the limit more. And they want drivers to make more mistakes. People, this is the greatest field in Formula 1 history. We're in the era. We're in a golden era for car talent, quite frankly. We have five world champions in the field, and we have four or five guys that could very easily be world champions in the right car, like a Daniel Ricciardo, like a Nico Hülkenberg, like a Valtteri Bottas, you know, Felipe Massa's a world title runner-up, etc., etc. There's about six guys in there with double-digit wins to their name in the field right now. It, like These drivers are not going to make mistakes, no matter how difficult the car is to drive. These are the best drivers on the planet. You're not going to make them look bad, and why would you even want to make them look bad? I do not understand that. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, it seems like a situation of the car is not being really designed for the task at hand. They're simply designed to go as quickly as possible. Well, let me just use an example here with IndyCar, where... These cars have to be designed to run safely side by side through a corner at 190 miles an hour. Exactly. And in, in that case, I know IndyCar is not, you know, the best comparison in the world, but it's a valid one in the sense of IndyCars have ground effect aerodynamics. They're designed to run side by side. They're designed to run close to each other. And surprise, surprise, when the cars run close to each other, you get great racing. Shocker. I mean, we talked about it. We talked about this about the Toronto race during our last episode and how the duel in Detroit. We had some great close racing, and you know, it was naturally more entertaining. We don't get that luxury in Formula One. Like you said, in Formula One, these cars are just designed to be as fast as possible, given the regulations and circumstances. And, and a natural downside to that is that you get cars that can't run next to each other, then hence the dirty air, and hence why we've had a lack of passing up the front this season, because the top cars can't run close to each other. You know, you like Canada was essentially a big example of this, where... Hamilton was holding off Rosberg by maybe a second and a half for pretty much the entire Grand Prix, just like in Australia, another example, where there there was only ever maybe two seconds between the two Mercs at any given point in time, and it was utterly pointless to attack any any more or attack any further, 
because of the dirty air, ruining your tyres and ruining your cornering speed. It, it, it was completely pointless. Yeah, Hence and... why we had the big Rosberg rant in China as well, King. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing that we see near the top of the grid, where the further and further you move up move up the field, the bigger and bigger the disparity is between teams, and the less likely you're going to see two drivers from from different teams racing against each other. Exactly, because the cars are just better in that regard, and when they're better, they're going to have they're going to generate more turbulent air. So it makes passing all the more difficult. And like Hamilton has not passed Rosberg to win a Grand Prix this season. People have to realize this, right? Because Hamilton's won every race this season. He's won from pole. Yes. So, and if, if it was the other way around, we'd be too busy slamming Nico Rosberg for not being able to pass Hamilton on track when it's not really as simple as that, given the nature of dirty air, given the state of the cars, given the state of play in the field. It's not straightforward, but of course, we like to victim blame. We are, we're, in, we're in that kind of culture in 2015 on the internet, especially when it comes to sport. Somebody's got to take the blame for something, and then of course, the not-so-good Mercedes driver is going to take the flack for this. You know, the guy of 11 wins and a, run, a world championship runner-up to his name. Yeah. See Felipe Massa for more information, because they have the exact same stats now at this point. <laughs> 11 race wins each, and a, run, and a world championship runner-up um, spot, but... For me, I, I felt like the criticism of this race being boring is just rubbish, quite frankly. I think it's complete horseshit. And for me, like I said, I said the same thing about Canada. I said I said about Canada in my review, that was about as good a race could have been without something major happening. And have we, be, have we become entitled in, in this era, King, to expect every race to be an 8 out of 10 belter? Uh, oh, it, it's... A bit yes, a bit no. I mean, to me, yes, the Jaded do want a great race every weekend, but I think this specific weekend was more of a culmination of we've gone so far this season, and all we had was pretty much Malaysia, which which to most of them wasn't really an exciting race. To them, it was like kind of shades of Sebastian Vettel at Red Bull, where he just, you know, led from the front for almost the entire race. Yeah, pretty much, and you know, the, it it was you know people like it's amazing that people will prop up a Sebastian Vettel vintage Red Bull performance as something amazing purely because of the status quo being so mediocre that you know we're, we're willing to give a couple of extra points just because it was a different car up the front that, that basically it, it, it was a six out of ten race with the minor shock of Vettel being in, in, in front instead of Hamilton or Rosberg. And that's kind of the nature of this whole of this whole scenario. But I mean, it's it's another one of those MythBusters kind of episodes where it's like, oh well, it's not like the past. The past was better, and the past wasn't really any better, was it, King? No, I mean, ugh. It, it seems it seems like the like even ugh, I the Red Bull Sebastian Vettel era it. It was better than what people made it out to be, and I think the same thing's going to happen mm. for this era as well when we get past it, where people are like, Absolutely. oh, it was, it was a lot better. It was a lot better than I remembered it being, and then uh, it, it's it's cyclical. It, it it happens for almost every era, where once once we get through it, oh, it was so much better. It, the same could be said for... Uh, the the Hamilton Alonso at McLaren, and then 2008 afterwards. Mm, 2008. Alonso's championship years at Renault, Schumacher's mm. years, uh, the McLaren and Williams years of the 90s. It, 
it just goes on and on where it's like, oh, I used to think that was terrible. It actually wasn't that bad, to be honest. It's the general rule of thumb, because we always look kindly upon the past. It was Pablo Elizande that put this out on Twitter, where he put a quote from Marcel Pagnol, where he says, The reason people find it so hard to be happy is that they always see the past better than it was, the present worse than it is, and the future less resolved than it will be. So, it's a, it's a perfect quote in that regard, because... I think F1 fans do look very fondly on that V10 era that we had, that, that most people my age that are listening to this probably have at least some experience of. Because, like I said, personally for me, I started watching properly in 2000 or so. I grew up with the Schumacher dominant era. Everybody loved Schumacher, despite the fact the races were quite often very boring in those eras with, you know... Schumacher just winning it from the front, and there was a couple of years where Ferrari was super dominant, so to speak. Like 2004, where Ferrari won, I think, something like 15 out of 18 races that season, and Schumacher, I think, won 13 of them, and it was just a ridiculously dominant era. There was not very many actual physical on-track races there, but, you know, because the cars sounded louder and they looked nicer, (laughs) we all look upon them so much more fondly, even though what we're complaining about now hasn't really changed very much from 10 years ago, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it it hasn't changed that much at all, and it seems like, it seems the media are just hype little changes up well out of proportion than what they actually are. Like, a lot of people attribute, you know, bronze dominance it during the first half of the 2009 season to them having a double diffuser without realizing Braun wasn't the only team to have a double diffuser at the time. Didn't Toyota have one too? Yeah, Toyota had one. I think Williams had one as well. It's just Braun just had the best version of that. And now yes. Toyota was pretty darn good for the start of that season as well. But then everybody caught them up afterwards and hence why 2009 ended up being closer than a lot of people give it credit for because of the fact that Braun only dominated for the first half of the year because they ran out of money afterwards. They yeah, just, exactly. They, 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 just, they just didn't have the money to realistically compete for the entire year. So, of course, the big bad factory teams of, you know, the usual suspects of Ferrari, McLaren, and, oh, that team called Red Bull, you may have heard <laughs> of them, um, suddenly came along and started taking wins for themselves, and Sebastian Vettel ended up being a runner-up in 2009 by just a handful of points. Um, despite the fact that, you know, Jensen Button won six of the first seven races and then didn't win another one again that season. So, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where we like, I think, I think we like to paint a beautiful picture about the past being so great when in actuality it wasn't. And we talked about this on Skype, I think on Sunday night after the Grand Prix. And we used a comparison of Senna and, and you know, the documentary or the docufilm, so to speak, of Senna, where... You know, anyone that's got half a racing brain cell in their body knows that Senna was ridiculously friggin' biased. And, you know, they painted their own picture of what Senna was going to be. And I've mentioned this in a couple of videos before about how, in essence, he, that what you saw on a cinema screen was not the actual docufilm for Senna. It was actually about three and a half hours long and had about an hour of Adam Prost interviews cut out of it. Now, I don't want to be cynical here, but... I think it's a fair suggestion to make that it was very, I think it's at least, at worst, convenient <laughs> that an hour of Prost interviews didn't make the final edit. <laughs> but 
simply put, it is a ridiculously biased hockey film, and it basically made Senna out to be this, like, untouchable, godly hero of Brazilian motorsport in the world in general, when, in actuality, it probably really wasn't like that. Yeah, I mean, you're gonna get that anytime you distill anyone, like, Senna. Senna's, what, his time in the spotlight was ten years? You distill Mm. that into, what, two hours but you're not gonna get the whole gist of what actually happened during that entire period yeah because people don't talk about the fact that you know he was the blatant benefit of team orders when he was at mclaren and prost ultimately quit mclaren for that very reason they were favoring him and that senna was breaking team orders to get ahead of himself but of course nobody ever talks about that with Ayrton senna because Ayrton senna is this untouchable godly being that i've had to deal with on the internet so many times where so many fans are up senna's rear but they've never actually watched him race (laughs) i mean i mean even some of his more memorable moments would probably get race bands today like him running off running prost off the road the first first corner at suzuka and then him going mm. into the press conference afterwards and says, you are no longer a racing driver if you go for a gap that no longer exists. And he's like, when you look at that in context, that nah, is yeah. so ridiculous. Yeah, if that happened in 2015, Driver X would be vilified. Like, if you basically, like, okay, um, picture the scene, people, on the internet right now. It's 2015. It's the final round of the championship in Abu Dhabi. Like, Lewis Hamilton, Nico Rosberg leads the championship by, say, 10 points. Nico Rosberg is starting in second on the grid, and he knows if he takes Hamilton out of the Grand Prix, he's world champion. So, of course, he makes sure Lewis Hamilton fails to finish, drives into his side pod, makes sure he damages part of the car. Hamilton doesn't, like, Hamilton's out of the race, so is Rosberg. Vettel goes on to win, but Rosberg's world champion. And then he goes to the press conference and says, I did it because I wanted to win and I went for the gap. The gap was there. Tough shit, basically. Imagine the reaction. (laughs) And that's, I mean, Senna has recanted on a lot of things before his accident, but that was the one thing he never admitted to there not being. He he took that to the end, that there was a gap there. And we give Max Verstappen shit today. Yeah. We, he doesn't know the half of it. Like, he, like when he was dominating, when, when Senna was doing his thing, Verstappen was like seven years away from even being born. <laughs> no, but I mean, that that's something Verstappen says, oh, that that the whole incident with him at Grosjean in Monaco, that it wasn't his fault. He still believes that. Yeah. It's like, it's Senna-like, and then it's, it's funny because the reactions kind of changed in that it looks a lot of people were praising Verstappen for going for it as opposed to criticizing him for putting off a very dangerous passing attempt yeah. and you know we, well we need more guys like Max and it's just because you know it's I think it's part of that is down to that center vibe that we've gotten all over these years where you know we like when guys are, are, are you know are aggressive and dangerous in this pussified f1 that we're apparently now watching and you know it's 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 that nature where we all, we're now going to praise guys like that instead of you know giving them a hard time like max probably did deserve to get but got away with it because you know he's young he's excited and you know we want a guy like max up, up the front apparently um yeah. nudge dot 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 so to speak but you, you got to realize like top gear segment did a much better job on summing up senna's career than since Senna's did of Asif Capaldia, and that's a two-hour docu film. 
Top Gear did a, did a better job in a 15-minute statement because they were down the middle on it. And they, they had Martin Brundle there talking about how they, they had a crash in Formula 3 at one point. And they were talking about how Senna was such a paradox in the sense of he'd be the first guy to run out of, run out of a car and then help somebody like, who was in a big accident. But he nearly killed Adam Prost to win a championship in 1990. So, you know, that was the confusing paradox and nature of it and Senna that, that you know... So many people love, but you got to realize that Senna is so out of date in today's F1 when it comes to his beliefs, his driving style, and his attitude that, you know, he's often looked upon much more kindly instead. Yeah, and I think uh, in the Top Gear special, Brundle and Clarkson were right. Like, Senna was a great driver, but Mm. don't get it wrong, he was not flawless. No. He was a very damaged racing driver character and personality. I mean, there's, there's been many stories where about how Senna was often on the edge mentally, so to speak, and how he was thinking about quitting after the Ratzenberger death in 94, before, the day before his, his tragic passing. But, you know, he was a flawed character. And I know we've kind of gone on one big tangent regarding <laughs> this, <laughs> but it, it, it's relevant. I mean, it's relevant to what we're talking about here and how, you know, we often look so kindly upon previous eras in the sport where... You know, we look like the 90s was the golden period. And, you know, it goes back to what Brundle was saying about car management after after the Canadian Grand Prix and how Brundle was talking about when he was racing in the 80s and 90s. They were managing even more than what we're doing now in, 20, in 2015. And back then they had two-way, they had no telemetry back in those days. So you had to manage everything back then. But because of technology and how, you know, we're getting all these public radio broadcasts, um... I mean, that's now oh, it's it, now it's a criticism because you know our our mask about what F1 is has been taken off with team radio so to speak and it's a confusing confusing thinking isn't it like, yeah know. i think i think part of its mentality cuz mm. the FIA were quick to learn after Senna cuz we ended up seeing Michael Schumacher get disqualified for you know i forgot mm. who he tried to take out in Australia one championship finale but he Damon be- Hill yeah, Damon Hilly got disqualified for that, and the, and the fans were clearly against him at the time, against Schumacher, mm. they all painted him as a villain, but for some reason it's drifted back to the ball being in Senna's court, where in that mindset, but it seems to be going back to Prost's court with the diehard fans who actually, you know, watch other series and have been seeing what has been recently happening in Formula 3. Free, yeah, exactly. Formula 3, and and we're seeing, like, the Ferrari Driver Academy just have a meltdown around Spa and Monza, where we're getting, we're seeing some ridiculously dangerous passing attempts, just, just some sheer brain-dead driving, quite frankly, and we had another um, emergency drivers meeting for the Formula 3 weekend at Spa this past weekend with, you know, another drivers meeting, John Tott basically coming off his perch like Shao Kahn in Mortal Kombat, <laughs> basically saying, you know, I'm going to deal with this myself. It's, it's it's gotten this bad now, so to speak, where now we're in, in essence, we're, you know, calling drastic meetings and now disqualifying and banning people for basically driving like boneheads, so yeah. to speak. Um, and that nature's carried over, I think, to Max Verstappen, who is you know very aggressive at that, probably the most aggressive driver in the field at the moment, um, so to speak. And, you know, most of the time it's worked out because, you know, these are the best drivers on the planet and Max is very good with no one's, no one's taking that away from him. 
but at the same time, he's all, he also had a very, very, you know, bad accident at Monaco, which could have been a hell of a lot worse, given what he hit, and he had to hit it at 170 miles an hour, um, and whatnot. So it works both ways in that regard, but it's 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 a very weird nature, so to speak. Yeah, it's a weird nature. I I'd, I suspect Formula like the Formula Three situation is different with when it comes to fans because. Mm. You're gonna, of course, the casual turnout's much higher for Formula One. If what happened in Formula Three happened in Formula One, I assume the fan outcry would probably be a whole lot different. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a confusing one, and I think the fans themselves are just disillusioned with what they really want because I've always said it, and Jack Vildeur said this. Um, where he was talking about like, asking the fans for opinions on Formula One is dangerous, and he's right. He's absolutely right to say that because I don't think the fans know what they want. Um, it's 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 really a head scratcher because, like, every day I talk about F one on Twitter, and every day I get the same set of disillusioned fans saying like, "Oh, the sport's terrible. I'm not going to watch, but keep watching." <laughs> and you know, <laughs> the sport is terrible. It's a disaster. It's in crisis, and it's. Do you think the media is partly to blame for this, King? Uh, yeah, I'd say the media is so. definitely because Formula One, I, I've said it before in other places, Formula One is not like other sports. You can't get no. news every single day. There needs no. to be a story that that carries F1 week to week. And when the mm. championship isn't close or people don't think it's close, people are going to look to other places for a story to make it to the next Grand Prix. And... This they'll is make the story. Own, they'll, yeah, yeah, they'll make up. They'll make up their own narratives, and I think, I think talking about that, Max has kind of been that that figurehead, for example, for a guy to basically take the narrative away from. At the time, it looked like Hamilton was going to run away with it at the time because he'd won. You know, I think was it four, like three of the first four rounds, and you know, Rosberg was looking mediocre. Vettel stole the win, so it looked like you know. It already looked like the media had ran out of things to talk about. So they were talking about Max Verstappen. Instead, they were hailing him this next Ayrton Senna, this next Michael Schumacher, future world champion kind of guy. And it's, it is it is partly the media's fault, in my opinion. And you're right. It, you're absolutely right. It's like you made the comparison on Sunday to me to the NFL network and how the NFL is such a massive entity and such a massive sport in terms of coverage, in terms of news, in terms of players, personalities and whatnot. I mean, today we're going to get the Tom Brady Deflategate appeal sentence coming in later today as, as, yep. as we're recording this. But in essence, there's a there's a story almost every day in the NFL, and the sport is so big it can afford to have that. Hence, why it's got its own bloody own network for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah, it, it's got its own network, and it has an hour and a half every day of devoted coverage on the biggest sports channel in this country, ESPN. Exactly. So. You've got your sport is so big you can afford to have a running story almost every day because there almost will be a new story every day and that's how crazy it is. Formula One doesn't have that same luxury. Often you, you can have races like Austria where there's not an awful lot of news to take away from from said Grand Prix where you can often go two three weeks without a big headlining story and when that happens writers are out of a job so they've got to kind of make up their own stories and make up their own narratives to keep you know to stoke the fires and keep it burning I mean Sky and BBC have been both guilty of this this season with things like, like the Max Verstappen incidents and the Max Verstappen stories and 
and you know other incidents like like Vettel and Ferrari and can they catch up? Where will Raikkonen keep his job, etc. That that's already been started, and then we're not going to find that probably till September until that's actually going to be a thing or not. So it's it it it's a crazy scenario where I think we media are, uh, media is part of the problem, and I feel like I think too many fans I think buy into that media based culture that Formula One is providing at the moment. Yeah, I'm. I see other sports similar to Formula One get it just right when it comes to it's like trying to get media attention, like mm. mainly golf and tennis, two international sports, two mm. very large international sports, but it has fairly a niche audience. They don't really care about media attention until their big headlining event comes along, and they each have for a year, five sometimes when it comes to you know either you know the Ryder Cup or the Olympic Games. Where it's basically, they don't care until the big big event comes along. It's not like that with Formula 1, because every race is fairly equal. Every race means as much as any other race. Mm, there's no headline event, really, and there's no... There's no... Like, rarely do you get a rolling narrative that goes on for, you know, very many Grand Prix. By the time the next Grand Prix rolled around, it's probably much all been shaken up. Um... So when that happens, there's not much to keep to keep you know to keep the wheels rolling. Pardon the pun there um, for Formula One, and yeah, I mean it's it's crazy. I mean, I just want to go for a quick discussion that Pablo Alizande had on Twitter. You may know him as um, Eli GP on Twitter. He writes; he's a new editor and writer over at uh, Motorsport.com, um, formerly Autosport. He's excellent. So he's he's one of the real good personalities to follow on F1. So if you haven't already, follow Pablo Alizande. He's excellent. <laughs> But um, so to speak, it's he's talk. He talks. This is a very, very great rant. Where he talks about. He says every pointless F one is dead stats will be followed by equally pointless F one is not dead stats. Fact. Here's the thing: crises are great for Formula One. There's no need to deny them or dismiss them. You can just accept them. If people followed Formula One just for the racing, you'd have nothing to talk about the Tuesday after the race. If people wanted just great racing, Moto3 would be the most popular series in the world. I'll let you in on a little secret. The racing in F1 has never, ever been great on a regular basis. If Twitter had existed during the 1979 French GP, people would have been like, What the fuck is Arnoux doing? He's going to take Villeneuve out. Having said that, yeah, fix F1 please. And he goes with the quote, like I said before, the reason people find it so hard to be happy is that they always see the past better than it was, the present worse than it is, and the future less resolved than it will be. And to me, I think he's the nail on the head, King. Yeah, hit the nail on the head. F1 has perpetually been in crisis since forever. Like, I'm trying to think of a time where, like, everything was perfectly fine and no one ever complained. Nope. All the time. All the time. And... Mm -hmm. It's it's something you see in other sports, but it's not something where it's like, yeah, this sport could end because of this crisis we're going through. Mm. Probably the worst you see is probably here in America where we have, you know, uh, CBA disagreements between the players and the owners, and there's probably going to be a lockout for, like, about a season. Yeah, because nobody really wants the sport to die, and eventually somebody will always come up with a compromise. It's like... It's like during the NFL lockout we had, I think it was about three or four years ago now, where all the, the owners and the players and the association couldn't come to an agreement on revenue splitting. 
and I think it was after Robert Croft's wife Myra passed away it was that Robert Croft got to was like okay fellas enough, enough bullshit like like <laughs> let's sort like let's let's play some damn football okay <laughs> and that's how it got sorted out in the end but you know F1 is never going to be in a sport ending crisis people always come up with a solution to these things and as Pablo said, the racing's never been consistently great. It's just we pluck out certain moments, we pluck out certain highlights, like larger sounding end- engines and better looking cars and Senna versus Pross, which never really was actually a thing, funnily enough. And, you know, little things to paint their own picture of what they think F1 was, what it is and what it should be, when in actuality, there's never really been an, an enormous issue, which... I find, like, I found the comments that Manisha Keltenborn made on this earlier today very intriguing in that regard, where it's talking about how they should open up engine development for every other manufacturer but Mercedes. And I felt like that was a ridiculous ruling, King. Uh, That's ridiculous in the way that that's not sporting. That's just because one guy's ahead doesn't mean you automatically handcuff him down because he's just too good. It's, 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 it's a pro wrestling storyline. It's like I'm expecting me should have come out and hit Paige with a steel chair. <laughs> it's so like speak. the last time I heard the story, and it was about the exact same team, they were eventually able to do it for other terrible, terrible reasons that they were able to ban the German teams from, from Grand Prix racing. <laughs> Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's as stupid as it sounds, really, in hindsight. And, yeah, I mean, the comparison, I think, a follower of mine made was to DTM last year, was DTM gave Mercs an extra time, extra time and an extra test to get their Mercedes up to scratch. Their C Coupe was uncompetitive to start that season. But, according to Manisha, she says it's the only way to have a level playing field. I'm going to read these comments out right here. It goes, if you open this up, it is going to be opened up for everybody. I don't like to compare this now to DTM, but they did allow one big name to develop and they themselves didn't develop that much to bring them up to a certain level, she told Sky Sports. I think that is the kind of thinking that we need that you need to have to make it a level playing field because the advantages which are there will be for years and not be able to be caught up. So you don't want to see this happening for the next two to three years. When asked if she was worried about that Mercedes could extend their advantage, Kelton Warren replied, Exactly. If you open it up, it is for everybody. So they will continue to develop as well, and they have such a massive advantage that I think even if they were to stop their development, others would take two years to get there. Jeez, that's a big statement. And then there's something we have to be seriously thinking about because for two years, fans are not going to accept these kind of races. You look at other events coming up, TV stations paying far more to broadcast these events and we will just be suffering. I sound like I sound like Alpha from Power Rangers when, when talking about this because it's just... It just sounds ludicrous to me, King. And it just seems like... It's very convenient to say this, given that she is on Ferrari power with Sauber. And, like, if you crippled Mercedes, who would directly benefit? Oh, yeah, the two teams on Ferrari power, of course. Yes. So, you know, the the cynical one in me makes it say, oh, it's a very convenient thing to say. And I get what she's trying to say here, but crippling Mercs is not going to help the problem. Because you've got to remember as well... Mercedes factory team is not the team on is not the only team on Mercedes power. Like nearly half the field is now. Yeah, I mean, 
it would affect oh my it would affect Lotus Williams and Force India and they would not be happy about that at all and I mean, Force India are struggling enough and you know Lotus are not where they want to be either in terms of where they were two years ago where they were up there challenging for wins last like two years ago so to speak so you would you would need you would need to have a strong case for slowing down Mercedes and the only way like I'm going off previous cases where they were able to slow down a specific team where it would have to be the only logical reason I could see this is it being for safety reasons. And we're nowhere near that stage yet, so no. that, you can just wipe that one off the table. So it's like, it's like, let me just run down like the short story of how the FIA were able to ban Mercedes and Audi the first time round, where it's they were basically coming up on the 1939 season. 1939, something big happened in September, and they weren't able to race for the next five years. Before that, they were worried, they were noticing how dangerously quick the Mercedes and Audis were going, and they wanted to ban, ban the supercharged cars they were using. They were gonna ban superchargers because they feared that it was too unsafe. But you know, it being the 1930s, safety wasn't a thing. No one was gonna take that. So when the war was all said and done, number one, German teams were banned for the next five years. Number two, they were they banned all supercharged cars, and the, they didn't ban them. They just said that if you're going to run a supercharger or a turbo, that it had to be, I think, at most 1.5 liters, and that worked out pretty much. Turbochargers didn't become efficient at 1.5 liters until the 80s. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I get that you want, I mean, this is this has always been the big ethical question when it comes to trying to stop F1 from having a dominant team. Because we saw it before. We saw it in 2005 where, you know, Bernie basically said, oh yeah, you've got to make tires off the whole Grand Prix. Blatant way of crippling Ferrari because they weren't used to the fact that Bridgestone tires weren't exactly durable compared to Michelin, which were just better over longer periods of time. So it's happened before in that regard. And, you know, 2014 while not deliberate, stopped Red Bull dead in its tracks yeah. and, and and whatnot. And it's it's the ethical question now is that do you go out of your way to deliberately stop a team from being too good? And it's it's not very sporting to do something like that because Mercedes should be credited and be rewarded for being that good by making the most of the current regulation. It's not their fault that, the, that you know, it's, they're part of the problem, but it's not directly their fault that the sport is like this, you know? Yeah, they they just were good when it counted most. And I don't want to... It sounds kind of sad to say this, but they should just look forward to the next time the engine regulations change. And on paper, that's 2020. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, no one wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear it, but it's the reality of the situation. Unless they have a drastic change, that, that you know, that that's what's going to happen. And the problem with that is that Given the way things would have to change earlier, it would have to be a strategy group change, and why on earth would Mercedes ever want to go through something like that and risk not winning anymore? <laughs> and it would look terrible to casual viewers, to not even viewers of Formula One, if something like that were to happen. If, if everyone else on the strategy group said, well, we're slowing this one particular team down, imagine how fans of other sports would see that. It would look terrible. It would look terrible, terrible, terrible in terms of 
casual mainstream sports where it's like, oh, team crippled for being too good. Like, we got away with it in 2005 when Ferrari was taken down a peg. And and because I don't think the sport was, you know, that, you know, widespread in terms of great big media coverage. But now, like, the sport and the growth of social media, the growth of media in general, the growth of, you know, mainstream media. If that happened today, (laughs) I'm not sure the reaction would be as positive. And there would be a huge amount of backlash. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd probably compare this to when... the early 2000s when Tiger Woods was dominating golf and people thought Tiger was going to destroy the sport. But, Mm. you know, 15 years down the line, he kind of made it better because, number one, it brought more media attention to golf and more money started coming into golf. And Mm. then eventually this thing with the courses became known as tiger-proofing, where they tried to make the courses even more difficult than they were just, you know, to try to slow down Tiger. But, obviously, the courses being more difficult affects everyone. Eventually, it produced much better golfers like Rory McIlroy and Jordan Spieth, who are arguably even better than Tiger was during the early 2000s. So, you know, it actually works out in that regard, so to speak, having a dominant guy, because dominance forces people to change the rulebook, or forces people to, you know, reinvent the wheel, so to speak, and come up with a new way of trying to win. Yes. And... You know, it works both ways. You know, the team isn't going to dominate forever, like, in that sense. It's just the nature of sport. It's the nature of Formula 1. These things go in cycles. No one's ever at the top for more than maybe three or four years at most. And as much as we talk about the Schumacher years, two of those five years, he had big threats behind him from McLaren and Williams. So it's not, again, as straightforward as they think it is. And again, the Red Bull era, we've talked about Sebastian Vettel in the past and how... Really? Red Bull was only dominant for maybe a year and a half out of the perceived four years that Vettel won the championship. So, one, you've got to read between the lines a little bit. And two, there is a plus side to to dominance because it forces people to take another look at things and forces people to spend more and it forces people to compete harder to keep up. And I mean, look at Ferrari this year. Their budget this year is $380 million. They upped it by 100 mil off the Vettel one in Malaysia because it gave them hope. (laughs) And that's where the threat's going to come from here, folks. The only team that can really give Mercedes a run right now will be Ferrari and they will work around the clock to try and find a way to make it happen. Now, that's probably where they could, you know, hamper... Mercedes justly, because the amount of money that these large factory teams are pouring into their programs, the amount of money that these factory teams are demanding that the the independent teams pay for these power units mm. is getting a bit ridiculous. Yeah, that's the biggest problem, I think, with this sport right now. Not the engine performance, but I think it's the engine cost that's the issue. And we've we've already seen this this year stories about how Force India have had their B-spec car delayed constantly this season. The fact they couldn't pay their engine bills on time. The fact they're releasing a B-spec car. You know, Sauber trying to float a deal with Jules Bianchi before his tragic accident in Japan last year, where the Ferrari were going to give them free engines if he gave Jules Bianchi a race seat in that team. So we've heard stories about engines... And, you know, we've heard about Robert Fernley at Force India talking about how they wanted to try and make a two-sport formula, so we've got a two-engine formula, so to speak. So we've seen stories about that in the past as well. So for me, it seems like the engine cost is the issue when it comes to Formula 1 and the issues that it has, as opposed to, you know, development and their performance. 
Yeah, Is that, that fair to say? Yeah, that, that's completely fair to say. Where it's down to the cost. If you don't have the budget, you cannot compete. You, I, yes, you could tech, like you could still, you know, obviously be out there on track, but you're not going to be anywhere in contention. But I mean, it seems like these, the in the middle teams, your your Williams, your your Force Indias, mm. they're trying to avoid going to customer cars. Customer cars seems to be almost the easy solution on paper to solving this entire problem. But Williams and Force India don't want us going to customer, going to customer cars for them feels like all the previous seasons were a wasted effort that all the money spent was a waste. If we were just going to go to customer cars anyway, is is, is it, is it, is it an ego thing in the sense of, oh yeah, we tried to do it on our own. We spent a hundred mil a year to try and catch up. It didn't work. We got to take the cop out option and go for customer cars instead and hope we get lucky. I mean, it, we all know the customer cars are not going to win. So it um, kind of feels, I don't know. I would disagree with that. It depends on how you work, how you make the system yeah. on whether customer cars win or not, because I don't know. Uh, I'd use two examples. One, completely more relevant because it's more recent where you see small teams win an indie car because in yeah. theory, everyone's running the same car, but you know, the big teams have more cars. So, Having newer equipment means having better equipment, but you still the small teams still have a chance. Mm. So they're pushing the needle. And another example would be, would be MotoGP in that sense, where satellite teams and satellite bikes have come close to winning before. They are competitive, and in, in many circumstances, we saw Crutchlow a couple of years ago for Tech Three really push for wins, and we've seen those satellite teams be competitive before against other factory runners. So. Customer cars could work, and I still say that's probably the best case scenario or best possible solution to this cost issue, which I think is the biggest problem the sport's got right now. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the show issue I said, I've said before, it while intriguing, I feel like it's not really a problem because you're never going to have a perfect show. Because, you know, we don't know what the show is in terms of, you know, what the perfect show is. Yeah. And nobody's ever going to be happy. It's, it's a very subjective thing. Um, so you can't really do that. The, what, the issue is you don't want to lose teams because they can't afford to be in the sport in the first place. You need cars, damn it. Yeah, you need cars. And I, the example I, w- I want to bring up of where customer cars can win if there's, you know, an amazing driver behind the wheel and there's an amazing team behind that customer car is uh, the 1958 Monaco Grand Prix where people consider that to be Sterling Moss's quote-unquote greatest victory because he was in, in a, like a customer Cooper which was 150 horsepower down on three Probably. factory Ferraris that chased him and he was somehow able to hold them off and win the race. What a hero! <laughs> but you know, so to speak, it, it 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 looks as if you know we don't think about these things in that way, so to speak. But yeah, the engine. I mean, I know the fact these these engines are apparently twice as expensive as the V8s that have come before it, and of course that's going to be a big damage to the wallet of independent and you know privateer teams like Force India, where you know you really are struggling for these kind of things. It's 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 not a good look. But how do you go about fixing something where the fundamental part of the car is so expensive? Yeah, I. It, the only thing you could do is cap the cost somewhere. 
It's like, unless you put a price ceiling on it, like the FI could put a price ceiling on power units, maybe you could do it that way. The teams have been arguing it doesn't work like that, that they don't buy, they're not buying the power unit. They're buying into the program. They're paying for development. They're not buying an engine off the shelf. Well, while true, you can still put a cost on that. You can put a price on that program. So, for me, there's no reason why that couldn't work. Yeah. Uh, I see I see the same argument where it's like, if they're paying so-and-so per month, not per engine, why don't you just cap that cost and the big teams are just on the fence about it and it's it gets annoying and it kind of shows like how dependent the big teams actually are on the small teams as well which is also an interesting dynamic yeah it's like they need each other in that regard like if the if the small teams drop out and it's just the big teams what happens is one big team's going to finish in last they won't get any money for it or as, or as much money they won't be able to justify their spending and then they'll quit and the sport dies on its ass so you need entrance you need guys to have a go at the big teams but in the same way the small teams need the big teams to buy their engines off, off as customers and whatnot so I get. I'm guessing that the factories just don't want to take a loss on their production costs for you know developing these ultra expensive power units and whatnot. Obviously, no. by charging whatever the hell they want for them. Because as you see by Ferrari's driver line not in the car with Esteban Gutierrez and and John Eric mm. Byrne, every penny does count. Every little piece of sponsorship to put in the war chest does Absolutely. count. Why wouldn't it? Cut? You know, I mean, money is money. Like, you're not going to say no to free money if you can hire a guy and then uh, have his marketing, you know, splashed all over your car. Who would say no to that? I mean, there's, there's anything better than the sponsors. There's more sponsors. So, I mean, <sighs> the customer cars thing, I do see it as the best method to get costs down. I really do. There isn't really an easier way. Like I said, a cap would probably work too. But it, it, it's difficult to implement because, you, you mean, you can't tell a team to only spend this much because there's loopholes to that. There's ways around that problem, like you mentioned before, about how a team could ask a sister company to develop parts for them, then write it off as a gift or as a donation, <laughs> and then yeah. it wouldn't actually show up on the bill. So it's there's loopholes around the whole cap-saving measure too, which is a bit of an issue. No, but when it comes to the, like actually capping the price of like a car or engine, there's no way you could avoid that loophole. There's no sister company mm. you could give the car to first. You have to buy the car somehow. People are going to notice that car move. Exactly. So, King, we've in, we've solved F1. <laughs> we've yes, yeah, we came up with a solution that would work, but it probably won't get implemented unless something drastic happens. Of course, because as I said, the big teams don't want to give up their slice of the winning pie, and they want to make a profit on these power units they're spending gazonkers, like like ridiculous amounts of money on developing in the first place. But hey, at least the show's good, right? Right? <laughs> the no. show could be, you know... A little bit better. A little bit better. It's it's not terrible. It's people blowing no. it out of proportion. Exactly. I mean, have ground effects aero, allow wheel to wheel racing, problem solved. <laughs> Quite frankly. And you know, that would that would cure the dirty air problem and nobody would ever complain about F one again. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. One thing that, that has come back up onto the table is the idea of having success ballast. Ah 
yeah, I know. Before we go, let's talk about this. Yeah, because I know you were for, you were vehemently against this at first, but I think you've warmed up to the idea as time's gone on. Yeah, that uh, like I've never like the most notable series with success, Ballas is the the BTCC. I've never watched it, but I do Me watch neither. DTM, and they started it. They started having it last year, and mm. it hasn't completely turned everything on its head but it's made everything a bit more competitive which is very nice exactly so yeah it it has proven it can work so if a team is too good they'll add weight to the car to slow it down enough to make it a little bit more competitive and to make it more difficult for the guys in front if the guys in front's that good he'll win anyway quite frankly and he'll deserve to win but it does it does do a decent job of leveling the playing field um so, you know, again, I mean, it sounded terrible at first, but again, I've warmed up to the idea as time's gone by. And again, like I said before, it's worked in the BTCC very, very well. And it's been a staple part of that series for many years. Um, would it work in Formula One? I don't know. You'd have to do some serious maths and some serious calculations to find out what kind of weight we'd be talking here to, you know, to, you know, throw a car off enough to bring everybody else into play. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know how, how that would work. And you, again, you think you need some engineers and some calculators and, you know, pocket protectors to, 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 to get on that and work it out properly. But I wouldn't be totally against that idea. Yeah, I wouldn't be against it. I think. A lot of the purist arguments, like they want to see the cars go flat out like they normally do. They don't want to oh, see added weight not. on the car. <laughs> yeah, that's a big thing. They don't want to see added weight on the cars. Oh, great. So we're back to square one again. Shit. <laughs> yeah. We haven't, we haven't sold F1, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, for every solution, there's an argument against it. And it's... Every solution's going to have a set of negatives. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of finding one that has the least negatives to most fans. Well, not most fans. Well, yeah, pretty Maybe. much must, most fans, because the teams don't want to upset the fans. Of course. You'll pretend to care about them, so to speak. But yeah, single-handedly, we fixed F1, King. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've thrown out a couple ideas. <laughs> We fixed F1, <laughs> so to speak. See, it's like FIA, if you're willing to hire us as, as advisors, we, we're very cheap. Uh, we, we won't break your bank accounts by any stretch. We will not go FIFA. We, we, we will not hold your money in a bank. We are not corrupt. We will do it for the good of the sport. We will take Total Wolf by the cojones, and we'll, we will fix this shit, okay? <laughs> so hire us, all right? <laughs> um, but yeah, if you've got any ideas to, to help fix Formula 1, and you know you you feel like your idea could could help things out, I'd love to hear your suggestions in the comments on this episode on harrisonformula1.com, or send, send us an email. I've got a new email coming through as well because of the website upgrades, at dre at harrison101.com. You can send me an email, and if there's any good ones, we'll read them out on the show, which would be really <laughs> freaking cool. Um, but but until next time, King, give yourself a quick plug before we go. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, at Ryan Eric King, and you can check out my website, formulae.nyc. Yep, and of course you can follow me at Harris101HD, but you probably already knew that, as well as the website Harris101.com, and you can subscribe on iTunes to check us out there if you haven't already. Good news, there will be more clips of this show going out on YouTube, so there really will be no excuse for you not to listen to us at some point or another now. <laughs> so so there'll be more clips of the show on YouTube to double over as videos in the uh, in the in the in, in the coming uh, weeks and months, so you can look forward to that. But until then, I've been Andre Harrison, he's been Ryan King. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next time.
Sayonara. Bye.